Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's bi-weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. This is the Tuesday pod where we talk about some news from the restaurant world and a couple of restaurants you may want to try. With that, I turn to my co-host this week. She is a former commercial real estate expert and a marketing genius. Monica Dana, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. Marketing genius. That's that's quite an intro, Eric. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I like to I like to fluff the the co-hosts up a little bit. Like, is is Felice truly an expert on food, wine, and good times? I would say <laughs> yes, but but really, what's the standard? It's just it's it's my opinion and my ability to uh, explain your your role to the audience. Well, I'm not going to argue with you on your opinion of me. So, all right, Thanks. good point. Let's dive <laughs> right into the news of the week. Wow. Topic number one, well, really just the, you know, the, the theme this week is ch-ch-ch-changes, a little David Bowie. So let's start with change number one. Bobby Hugel has bought the assets of Montrose Dive Bar Catbirds. Uh, Catbirds closed at the very end of July, but he plans to reopen it uh, sometime this fall once he has secured all the necessary permits and a liquor license and all of that. This this decision comes after Shelley Wilburn, who had owned Catbirds, closed it, kind of citing the fact that they had been shut down for 10 months in the early days of the pandemic and just never really recovered financially from the things that they had to do to stay, you know, to, to pay rent and permits and, and all the other things that they had they had to pay even when they, they weren't actually open. So, Monica, let me let me throw it to you. What do you what do you think of Catbirds? It's kind of a staple on the the Montrose bar scene. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, as a born and raised Houstonian, Catbirds was has always been part of my kind of early drinking career, <laughs> as I'll call it, <laughs> probably before I was of legal age. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. I actually learned about this change, not necessarily from the news, but I was scrolling Instagram and sure most listeners are familiar with the Montrose Intellectuals Instagram handle, um, which is a very um, humorous take on kind of uh, food and beverage and all goings on trend in Montrose, kind of with a tongue in cheek um, delivery. And, you know, they had a post about about Bobby. <laughs> I was kind of scrolling through it and, you know, they they take digs at Bobby, you know, pretty often, I think. And I, I was reading through the uh, comments and he actually responded, which I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, usually I'm, you know, longtime listener, first time caller was kind of the the theme of his, his comment. Um, and he did, you know, address some of the concerns that were obviously a, a humor based. Um, but yeah, you know, I think as, as knowing Bobby personally, as knowing him in a business perspective and personally perspective, um, he has been a long-term fan of Catbirds. I mean, it, that's no secret. I think that obviously location-wise down the street from Anvil, but also, you know, being a Montrose resident, you know, I think um, Catbirds itself, you know, is one of those kind of Houston institutions that no matter what happens to it, there's going to be controversy around it, Right. Um, who takes it over? Nobody's worthy, right? But I, I, right. I mean, just to sort of, just to sort of flesh it out a little bit, Bobby, Bobby Hugel, Justin Yu, and their investors bought that shopping center that includes Catbirds back in 2019. So they, so they own the property, and and also Bobby is something of a Catbirds regular, as you said. Anvil is right down the street. He lives nearby. It's kind of a place for him to go after work to have you know, a drink and and he and 
And Tommy Ho, the the uh, general manager of Anvil, even worked a guest shift there once to kind of raise some money for their their staff when Catbirds reopened. So it's he has a longstanding relationship with with Catbirds. Yeah, and like I said, you know, I think again, anybody that takes it over is going to be crucified at some degree by the 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 Montrose mob, right? <laughs> right. I mean, the 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 concern, right, is that this very casual neighborhood divey kind of you know place where you can go have a beer and a shot and watch the Astros that that Bobby's going to ruin it, right? That he's going to try to turn it into something that's more like Anvil or Refuge, uh, which are upscale cocktail bars. But, but I think those concerns are, are misplaced. I think, I think Bobby, Bobby as a, as a patron and and a landlord for Catbirds Mm -hmm. understands it's kind of place in Montrose. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't think that he's going to change it very much. I mean, you know, they may, I don't know, they may bring a slightly better class of booze or they may make sure the the beer tap lines are are cleaned on a regular basis or, or, you know, something like that. But like, I don't, (laughs) I don't think they're going to, I, I don't think it's, I, like Bobby said, it's not going to be a cocktail bar. I believe him. I don't think he wants, I don't think he wants to put a cocktail bar there. I think he, he likes it for what it is and, and to the, whatever extent that he can kind of maintain that character he's going to. I, I agree. You know, I think that Bobby's a smart guy. Look, I mean, business-wise, obviously, he's not going to screw anything up that's working, right? And obviously, there's some things that were working at Birds for a long time, and maybe some things, like you said, that weren't, like clean up the bathrooms, get the beer lines clean. Hopefully, no one's complaining about those kind of things. But, you know, you just think, who would have been worthy for the the Montrose crowd for to be welcomed, right? I mean, is it like a Brad Moore situation? Or I started thinking about like, who, who would they have not been upset about taking it over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know who else was kind of in the running to take it over. I, I mean, I think the best outcome would be that if, you know, Shelly Wilburn had been an employee before she was the owner, I suppose if there were some other obvious employee who had been kind of saving up or, or maybe even like, um, you know, Lindsay Burleson who owns two headed dog and worked at grand prize and poison girl for a long time. If she were looking to do another bar, she could have like, she's maybe that right kind of person where people would have been less upset. Uh, but, but, you know, it's just, there's always, there's always that like change, you know, Montrose, Montrose is objectively just very different than it was, you know, even 10 years ago, even five years ago. Yeah. So, you know, people, people who've lived in the neighborhood for a long time or, or eaten and drank in the neighborhood for a long time have feel, have strong feelings about all of those changes, obviously. And, and so Bobby uh, taking, taking over catbirds is is certainly one of them. Let, let me ask you about one other thing and then we can, we can move on. Uh, you know, Bobby has said that he's not sure that he's going to keep the name catbirds. He kind of wants to hear from, from regulars in the Montrose community. Uh, I talked to Shelly about this. I talked to her, her daughter about this. They, they would like to see it stay catbirds, but, but what do you think? Do you, do you think that Bobby should keep it as catbirds or, or do you think that the, the, the best thing to do is a clean break and a new start with a new name? I would keep it. You know, I think it's, even if ownership's changing hands, even if just the brand, um, I think it does have some obviously recognizable, um, name brand recognition, but also, you know, I think that, um, Calling it something different, you know, the, the post I mentioned on Instagram with the the Montrose uh, intellectuals was like, oh, this is the fourth location of Tongue Cut Sparrow, right? Like dig in, like moving that around, right? Right. <laughs> 
So, you know, again, I think Bobby's smart. I think he'll do what's right. I think he's good at kind of listening to the patron and um, I would keep the name. No, I'm, I'm with you. I would like to see it stay Catbirds. I think there's, there's a, a comfort in that name, you know, just kind of rolling down West Timer and being like, Oh yeah, you know, I could, I could stop in and get a, a Lone Star and a, a shot of Jim Beam or, or just, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the bar where I had pie pizza for the first time. And, and so, you know, I've got my own kind of memories of it, but uh, yeah, I think I, you know, I think I'd like to see it stay Catbirds for the next generation of uh, Montrose residents to, to have their, their own little hangout spot. Yep. Agreed. All right. Let's move on to topic number two, more changes. <laughs> Agricole hospitality has closed both Miss Carousel, the cocktail bar and Indianola. It's Texas comfort food restaurant. It plans to replace them with a Tex-Mex restaurant in the Indianola space and a bar that a press release describes as a, quote, laid back bar that better utilizes the ample square footage with plenty of sports and event watching, bar games and capacity for live music and DJ entertainment. Uh, in other words, kind of a, I don't know, it sounds a, sounds a lot like a sports bar, uh, <laughs> a sports bar with a DJ, which is kind of what uh, Pitch 25 is, I guess, uh, right, their, their right. version of that, so. Let me just ask you, I mean, before we we turn to what's next for this property at St. Emanuel Street, what do you what did you think about Miss Carousel in Indianola? Why why didn't they catch on the way that maybe a restaurant group of agricultural success, you know, this is Cultivare mm-hmm. and Eight Row Flint and, and most recently Easy's Liquor Lounge. What do you think? What do you think they never quite cut on the way that maybe they they wanted them to? You know, when I heard about this, I thought the same thing. The last couple of years, kind of watching the East End and kind of the types of places that have been successful and maybe not successful in that kind of East downtown area, you know, when Indianola and Miss Carousel first opened, and I'll be honest, I mean, back then I was developing real estate. So I had a very keen sense of kind of where we were looking to kind of go next into certain areas. And East End has always kind of perplexed me from a real estate perspective for restaurants, just because, you know, historically, there's not been a ton of um, what we call kind of in, 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 in restaurant development rooftops, right? So where people are living and kind of want to go in their neighborhood. And aside from kind of the Nancy's Hustle and the Tiny Champions, what's in my mind are kind of more destination a little bit further into East Downtown. You know, I thought it was interesting location for that type of restaurant, you know, kind of new American-ish, you know, a little elevated. Um, and even with Miss Carousel being, you know, a fancy kind of ish bar. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm surprised that they're closing. I think that there's lots of factors there, one of them due to location, one due to, you know, two years after they opened or even 18 months into it, they had all that construction around there. Um, tons and tons. I mean, for years, right? It's still there. It's not like it's even done. And I think, you know, as a real estate perspective, even just the perception of nowhere to park, even if there is tons of parking a block away, if you can't see it, if in your mind you're thinking, where do you want to go tonight? Oh, it's so hard to park over there. There's all that traffic. I do think those things do, you know, come into account for, you know, a nice-ish elevated place that you're wanting to go to dinner. There's so many options that are easy to go to in the Heights or Montrose that you can just pull into the parking lot. I think that may have had some to do with that. Um, as far as the food and drinks, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I hadn't been into Indianola in probably three years. Um, and I think that restaurant group did as good of a job as it could, right. To put the right, um, concepts in there. I think there's just several factors kind of working against that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think all of that is well said. I think, you know, in the original conception of Indianola, the idea was that it might 
like if you if you think about kind of where it is geographically, yes, it's in Edo, but it's also just across the freeway from the convention center and the convention center hotels and a ton of offices. And, and the original idea was that it could be like a resource uh, for business professionals. They were going to be open for breakfast for like, yeah. you know, business people. They were going to do lunches and private events at Miss Carousel and, and all that stuff. And I, I just think, I think the pandemic really wiped all that out. Right. Cause business travel went away. Conventions went away mm-hmm. and it just never funny. quite, it never quite caught on with the neighborhood, which is really a bar district. I mean, you know, just like Washington Avenue or Midtown, like we wouldn't really expect an Indianola style restaurant on Washington. Uh, in either of those areas. Right. Yeah. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect Indianola like on Bagby right. uh, or Washington. It really doesn't make sense in Edo, at least not right now. And Miss Carousel is kind of cool, like intimate cocktail bar with the, the freaking, you know, the vintage, um, mid-century modern furniture and this like very stylized look. I mean, I loved it. Like I, I want, I wish I my house looked like, you. you know, I wish my house looked like Miss Carousel, but. You know, well, I think too, with specifically with that kind of pocket of, of places, you know, trying to draw that business crowd or convention crowd across 59, there's just like invisible barrier in people's minds. Right. And especially Houston, not being like a walkable downtown city, you've got to cross that feeder. You've got to cross that 59. And I don't know if, if, if you feel that same way, but it's like, look at the rustic, which I think is from what I've heard, pretty successful from a convention perspective. I've got friends that come in town or staying in town and they're at the Marriott. Hey, we went to the rustic. So same kind of area, right? But it's just on the right side of 59. Oh, no, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I think if you get out of a concert at Toyota Center or an Astros game and you want something after, you head either to the Rustic or east to Main Street at, and the bars along Market Square. And and you, or sorry, west, west to Main Street and the bars around Market Square. Uh, you don't go east. You don't, you don't cross back over the freeway. So- yeah. Unless you're, except for Justin Verlander, who goes to Nancy's Hustle for hamburgers, that's the that's the <laughs> exception. But uh, but for the most part, I think I think people orient west and south, and so it just didn't, it, you know. And meanwhile, they're going to they're going to Edo to party at Chapman and Kirby, especially on Sunday Fun Day. They're going mm-hmm. to, you know, Eighth Wonder Brewery to hang out before the, the Dynamo game. game. You don't know who. Yeah. What- you know, Ola got, you know, pre dynamo game dining. I'm assuming not a lot, but yeah, I don't think a lot. You know, I think, I think people go to pitch 25. I think they go to little Woodrow's. I think they go to, to places like that that are, that are more casual. But, but I will say, you know, I am, you know, I, I mean, they wanted I, an agricultural sports bar, cool, whatever they want to do there. That's, I think that's certainly a better fit for the area, whether that catches on or not. We'll see. I'm excited about this idea of Tex Mex. Not that we don't have a lot of Tex Mex, not that they aren't. <laughs> Not that they aren't relatively close to Ninfas on navigation and Altiempo on navigation, yeah. uh, but I really like the food at Eight Row Flint, and the tacos there are good. The queso is good. So you know this is a style of food that they've already shown some familiarity with as a company, and so seeing them kind of stretch out and do, you know, more fajitas, more enchiladas, more tacos, you know, maybe even some seafood dishes in a way that they just haven't been able to do at Eight Row Flint. Yeah, uh, I think that's exciting, and and I'll be curious to see kind of how they how they put their spin on that, and and I also think it's a more accessible style of food that that will fit better in that neighborhood. 
I think so too. I think being able to describe even cuisine from Indianola, I mean, you could probably describe it better than me, obviously, but you think like this new American title that's been thrown around for 10 years, it's just a catch all for not really anything you can describe it by. Right. But great. Yeah. uh, Texas immigrant comfort food, you know, (laughs) kind of this and that seasonal, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's eclectic. Yeah. Uh, And I think from a marketing perspective, just from a marketing branding perspective, which I kind of look at everything through a marketing lens, um, it's tough. It's a tough sell. You know, you've got a beautiful logo. You've got a, you know, you've got a name that has some rich meaning. At the end of the day, you're telling somebody about this place. You're going to need to remember how to describe it. What kind of food is it? What was my favorite dish? Right. I mean, from a marketing perspective, I think those things are are sometimes overlooked. Right. You got to you. You always still have to have that like one dish or those two dishes that like you kind of become known for, right. Mm-hmm. And that, that keep people coming back yep. again and again. And and I don't know that Indianola ever really established that, but, but I will say just to, just to wrap this up and then we'll move on to topic number three, Martha Wilcox, who had been the chef de cuisine at Indianola for the last year plus uh, is someone who's just super talented. You know, yeah. we, we knew her at, at Pax Americana that she went to the West coast for a while. Now she's back in Houston. She's a, uh, you know, she's a free agent and, and I, I, but I suspect that uh, it will not be long before, you know, some enterprising restaurant group has to see that, that she's just like incredibly talented and just is like, uh, come work for us. You know, like, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know who, like, I don't don't know who's going to hire her. I don't, I don't know in exactly what capacity, but uh, I don't think she'll be unemployed for very long. Yeah, no, I hope she don't land somewhere good too. All right. And then finally, Topic number three in our changes theme, Underbelly Hospitality announced that it is closing Wild Oats at the Houston Farmer's Market, and they will replace it with Comalito, a new taquerio created by star Mexican pastry chef Luis Roblito Richards. Wild Oats in Spring Branch is still on track. In fact, that restaurant will stay open through the end of August. It will fulfill all of its commitments to Houston Restaurant Weeks, and then it will reopen hopefully in October at its new home in Spring Branch. Again, Monica, this is this is a part of town you know well. Uh, you leased restaurant spaces in and around the Heights and Garden Oaks, which brings us into the area of the Houston Farmers Market. What were your what were your thoughts on Wild Oats and, and what do you think it was that it just never again, it just never really caught on in that in that area? Yeah, you know, again, kind of in that you know, when, when, when restaurants are kind of developed on the perimeters of neighborhoods, right? So same kind of East End discussion. Obviously, one could argue that um, North Main is in the middle of the Heights, but really is the perimeter of the Northeast side. It's pretty East of Garden Oaks where I live. It's pretty North of the main part of the Heights. Obviously, I think, you know, there was a lot of residual, I think, at least from my perspective, kind of backlash on changing the Houston farmer's market, right? I think there was some of that that still kind of came through what you're going to touch the farmer's market, you know? Um, So, you know, I feel like that area as a whole hasn't really made it past that hump of we've got to start thinking about this again treasured Houston landmark the Houston farmers market where I used to go as a kid right to buy strawberries um into this kind of uh built up elevated um you know polished restaurant hub and I think there was some again brand confusion there from the beginning 
wild oats specifically, you know, in underbelly burger, obviously, you know, I think obviously when those were initially developed, you know, Chris Shepard was obviously a part of that group and, and did have some pull to get people to, Hey, come try it out. Come to the farmer's market. This is a good project. It's local. I'm local. I think his departure might have hurt that a bit. Um, in that people felt, okay, the person that kind of was drawing me to these concepts maybe isn't with the group anymore. Maybe there's a little bit of a less pull to try this out. From a from a real estate perspective, from a location perspective, you know, I think again, um, thinking through kind of the when people are drawn to the farmer's market on a Saturday morning or, you know, on a weekend, is that in the same vein of them kind of visiting to sit down for a meal? You know, you think about your farmer's market experience of I'm going, I've got my bags, I know what I want to need. Usually that means I'm going to be cooking later tonight. Is that the right um, time to catch someone for a burger or to sit down and eat? I don't know. I think that again, being kind of on the perimeter, again, here we are on the east end of a market, right? Um, you have naturally less traffic traveling that way. I mean, kind of this north and south shepherd, right? The north and south corridor of the heights, pretty far east of that. Um, as far as the concept itself, you know, I went to Wild Oats several times. Um, and I think that, you know, to me, it got a little bit lost in, and maybe it was the time it opened, right? And I don't remember what year it opened. Was it 21? Yeah, it opened in, uh, no, it opened in 22. 22. Um, I think it got a little lost in kind of a lots of restaurant boom, you know, post-pandemic opening, and maybe it didn't really get the market share in that restaurant group worthy of creating, um, you know, that that rabid fan base that's just, we're going to Wild Oats for, for brunch every Sunday, um, but, but I'm, I'm excited to hear that they're, um, you know, reconcepting that and I'm excited that, you know, Wild Oats is still going to exist in Spring Ranch. You know, I think that, um, you know, interested to see how that would do in that market. Yeah, no, I, I, I think all of that is well said. I think, you know, for, for all of the concerns about they're changing the farmer's market and, and it's not the same and some of the vendors aren't there anymore, you know, there's no better place to kind of displace your wrath than a new restaurant uh, that's selling a 40 something dollar chicken fried steak <laughs> and a 70 something dollar ribeye. And, and yeah. the, even though that food, like I really enjoyed my, I've really enjoyed my meals at wild oats, but like the, the like this is, this is where we're going to draw the line. It's you a know, tough pivot. This, it's a tough pivot to make from a $5 bin of strawberries, you know? Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so you know, I, but I do think like, and they've tweaked it some, you know, I, I talked to Nina Quincy, who's the president of Underbelly Hospitality. She said, look, we, you know, we opened it with food that we were really excited about, like as, as chefs, as, as food people, but mm -hmm. it didn't always connect with, with diners, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, we did a cornbread stuffed quail dish because it was really important to Nick Fine from, from hunting trips with his dad, but, yeah. but nobody really knows what that is. But and we 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 say that we're doing Texas comfort food, but we didn't have a puffy taco on the menu. So yeah, you know. no, and I think that's a good point you bring up. I think in general, you know, in six years developing restaurants, you know, I kind of learned and saw the most successful operators didn't just come into a neighborhood or come into a location with the concept already fleshed out, right? We want to do this because a chef, this the chef means this, and and this is the menu, and all these kind of esoteric sometimes ways for putting a menu together our brand without really it's kind of a myopic view of not looking at the neighborhood around let's develop the um, concept with the neighbors in mind right with the patrons 
some of the, my most favorite operators to work with were people that came in and said, and I'd say, so what do you think you're going to do here? And they're like, you know, gosh, I'm looking out that I'm looking at the space. I, I think I'm going to do this. And really letting the location speak to the concept versus I'm just going to plop this concept down in any location and expect it to be successful. You know, some of the most, uh, you know, uh, successful operators are people that don't know what they're going to do until they're inspired by the space in the neighborhood. And, you know, that's kind of what we did when I was with Revive. I mean, we, we want those spaces to influence what happens there. Yeah, no. And and I think so. So turning now to Comalito, this new restaurant that's coming to the farmer's market, it just is so it's a much better fit. I agree. Right. Like, you know, and Luis Robledo Richards, who, you know, has this incredible chocolate shop in Mexico City. And he's yeah. been on he's been the judge of a cooking competition show on Netflix. I mean, this is a this is a very high profile guy and they're and they're doing it right they're going to import heirloom corn they're going to you know nixtamalize the corn they're going to make the masa uh for the tortillas they're going to roast the the meats they're going to cook other meats on the plancha they're going to have a great a, like simple agave cocktail program they're going you know they're going to make a great margarita they're going to make a great paloma they'll they'll have to you know they'll get a little bit texan they'll embrace the ranch water uh, you know, and it'll be founded on, on those three pillars, right? Incredible tortillas, really delicious meats and vegetable tacos and a great agave cocktail program. And if you just do that in that neighborhood at that farmer's market, I, I think it, I think it's just going to, I think it's going to be great. Well, you've got to, my advice, embrace the neighborhood around you. Those are going to be your customers that are there two, three times a week you know, at least once a week, once a month versus the destination diners who are not going to be your bread and butter, right? I mean, you've got to design an experience for the people in a one to two mile radius. Um, you know, and you think about obviously walkable cities, dense cities like Chicago and New York do this really well, like have this borough right? In a borough two blocks away, there's a taco sh- shop, right? But that's a different borough, you know? And I think you're really thinking about, yes, we have Tex-Mex on every single corner in Houston, but my advice would be, you know, really embrace that, that, that neighborhood around you and, 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 and build it for them. Well, and that's the other thing that I, I said to, you know, when I met with Chef Louise to talk about this, I said, look, like if you could do, if you can do a really quality tortilla and a, and a really delicious taco, but you could do it at, at $2.50 or $3, I, I don't think they can be $5 tacos. I think, you know, if you want to fit that neighborhood, you're going to no, have to yeah. hit a price point and, you know, maybe make a little less money in the short term. But, and, and he seemed really confident that they could. That, that they could they could do it at a at a price point that makes sense for the neighborhood makes sense for the market makes it easy for people i i think that's going to be a huge part of things yeah no i agree you know i was thinking about radical eats original location which wasn't that far from where that is and they kind of early on did that you know built that kind of vegan tex-mex situation for the neighborhood right this wasn't a chef that came in and hey i want to i've been dreaming of building this restaurant for 10 years oh found a spot i'm going to do it there right that that original kind of radical eats concept came at least felt from stacy from the neighborhood right i'm going to make tacos for my neighbors right and and i think you know we're we you know you you have some even more direct experience with this because you know you you were at the stomping grounds and you leased a space to Cherry Block Smokehouse, which was trying to do barbecue and steaks and a, and a bunch of stuff. Yep. It, did, it didn't last very long. And it's being replaced with La Mexicana, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to do kind of their Tex-Mex, Mexican, uh, you know, they do a little of both. Yep. 
and and I think that's going to be a great fit for the neighborhood. And and so I think me too. You know, this kind of like know your audience. You know, as Linda as Linda says every time she's on the show, yep, know your yep. neighborhood. I, I I mean I I think that's how this is this is going to play out really nicely. I think. Yeah, me too. All right, Monica. I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Monica, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk about another another restaurant that's maybe also going through some ch- 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 changes. Gulfstraumen, the seafood restaurant at the Post uh, Food Hall in the in the Post HGX downtown. You know, this is a this is a restaurant that opened to a lot of attention in in 2021 because of Paul Key and and Christopher Hotduft, both of whom have, have been on the show to talk about it. The Houston Chronicle named it the best restaurant in the city uh, in the fall of 2022, and so you know we went a couple of weeks ago for for dinner to catch up, to to try some summer menu items, to kind of see Paul, to kind of see what they were up to. You know, we we had a meal with some some highs and lows. So so let me just ask you, I mean, what did you what did you think of our dinner at Gulfstraumen? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, and, and you know, I invited a friend to come with who has some um, experience with the fair, right? Um, she lived in Sweden for several years and happened to be in town visiting me. And I thought, let's come along and kind of get your uh, take on this. Um, so I was interested to hear what she said. You know, it was obviously not my first time dining at Gulfstraumen. We actually had a, our company party there last December, which was a much different experience, right? We had 20 people kind of overtaken. It was a, a, a designed kind of food and beverage menu. You know, I think what's interesting about this sort of um, elevated food experience in a casual environment like a food court um, that Gulfstraumen is obviously inside the post you know, you open yourself up to um, having an intimate, uh, elevated food experience while there's kids and families kind of running around in shorts and licking ice cream cones, right? So I think that obviously that needs to be said. It, it I, To me, it takes a little away from the experience, but, you know, I think trying some of the new food there, you know, when we were there, um, you know, was interesting to me. I think some of it I'd had before, you know, some of it was some summer specials that they brought out and, um, I, I think that what they're trying to do there is, and I think Paul even, you know, kind of shared that with us is almost like a launch space for maybe we, something that's successful here, we're going to do upstairs or we're going to, you know, kind of spin that off to, to a higher, you know, dine, elevated dining experience. But, but I enjoyed our meal. You know, I think there were several things that, um, again, my guest, you know, a friend of mine that was in town, Laura, Paul was real, real cool about kind of asking her what, what's something maybe she, she wanted to hear, she wanted to eat, right. Try from Sweden. And he brought something out for her to try, which was cool. Yeah. The Gravlax, the, the kind of the snitter that they do that, that like, uh, you know, open face, uh, which was snitter. actually one of my favorite things that I'm glad he brought it out. It was, it was delicious. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you know, Laura, you know, Laura's concern or, or, you know, sort of, as we sort of went through the menu is, you know, they brought us, you know, they brought us crab rangoons. They brought us their fried shrimp that are, are kind of like a, you know, fried like tenkatsu, like the, uh, you know, the Japanese pork cutlet. You know, we did a whole fried fish. You know, we did a fried fish sandwich. So it's like, okay, we're at this ostensibly this like, you know, elevated 
seafood restaurant and half of the dishes we got were were fried and it's not that they weren't <laughs> delicious right but it's just like that's that's not necessarily but at the same time we also got singapore chili chili crab and, and shrimp ceviche and uh a really delicious tuna tostada and, and a really nicely cut piece of uh of tuna sashimi so it's like they're trying to kind of do everything right now yeah you no know? it did feel a little overwhelming in that every dish felt like it needed a Texas. They were trying to put a Texas uh, Gulf coast kind of spin on it. And it doesn't really need that. In my opinion, if you're going to be the best kind of seafood, the way you are, you know, if you're experiencing us to other things outside of Texas, you know, I wouldn't say don't try so hard to make it fried or um, chili, you know, no, there was no beans in the chili. <laughs> well, right. But, but, but at the same time, it's like, they, it, it's like, yes, you can have this like kind of classic European, style like roast fish or these these elevated you know raw dishes but at the same time like it's a high volume food court and so yeah. you have to have crab rangoons and fried shrimp to sure. kind of you know do volume and and keep people interested so yeah you know i i you know paul paul did sort of say like we're moving in a slightly more casual direction yeah to kind of suit the food hall and that there will be a a new more elevated restaurant i mean what what he really said was that that Christopher Hotteft had been to Navy Blue and was suddenly a little jealous. Uh, <laughs> That's know, exactly like, what he said. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, now that now that you see what people will embrace right. in terms of an upscale seafood restaurant, and, and I, I suspect if if Chris hasn't been to Little's Oyster Bar, like that's going to be, you know, the next time he's in Houston, I'm sure he'll he'll go there too and, and get some other ideas about kind of what we as a city are interested in. And, and that will inform this kind of evolutionary concept that, you know, hasn't, hasn't been announced yet. And, and, you know, is, is still very much under development, but, but is, you know, really exciting because, you know, Christopher holds a Michelin star uh, at his restaurant in Norway and, and Paul, you know, Paul's a James Beard winner. Paul won top chef. I mean, Paul worked at Uchi for a long time. You know, some of us remember a key very fondly, like we know what he's capable of mm -hmm. uh, when we turn him loose in a fine dining context. And so that th they've been trying to be, kind of both things for uh, almost two years now is, is a testament to their, their skill and their staff, but like that, that they would want to split things up into more formal and more casual like that. That makes a ton of sense to me. No. And I, I would say, I appreciate the juxtaposition of this kind of elevated food experience. Like I said, in a busy kind of food hall, it did feel very, um, you know, Laura even commented like a Korean um, kind of food court, you know, um, food market where it was lots of hubbub. Food's amazing. I do appreciate them kind of using it as a test ground for what can we get away with, right? What's hitting? What can we move kind of to a more elevated situation? It's not easy to do. You know, it's not easy to come out and say we're going to have this um, this type of restaurant in a food court. And then again, it's not easy to kind of pivot into, we're seeing people want more of this. Can we keep this concept intact, move it away and will it succeed, you know, outside of the food court? So, um, you know, I, I, I admire what they're trying to do and, you know, um, haven't really had a bad meal there. And, no. And we, and we had a good meal there. I mean, we, oh, yeah. we had a, we had a good meal. It's just that, you know, I've been going to Navy blue a bunch recently. I'm just, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. <laughs> and and so you know to go to Gulfstream and it's like oh uh, we don't actually have our wine list we don't have our full wine list right now because we forgot to put the wine order in yeah you know yeah, or yeah. like the the staff was still kind of learning to manage the flow and and so you know the the things like that that like in a food court like 
okay, like I can let some of that slide, but mm. compared to my service experience at some of these, these newer, uh, a little more polished seafood restaurants, it's like, oh, you know, like I do kind of, I do kind of like that Navy blue service where they just, they're like almost psychic in their anticipation of your needs. It, it underscores the importance of um, the hospitality at that type of as part of the experience, right? I mean, if you have the same exact food delivered in the same exact way and the experience is different, what are what are those things that changed, right? The staffing and you know, the wine list and the, the lighting, right? And the sound and all these things that make restaurants good restaurants outside of the actual food. You know, you kind of remove that from a food court situation. You get kind of a hub up busy, different uh, you know, experience, but it does make the experience different, you know, and it doesn't change the the, the taste of the food, but um, you know, if that's what you, I'll tell you when I bring people in town and I'll bring them to Gulfstrom and I, I enjoy saying, Hey, I'm going to bring you one of, I'm bringing you to one of Houston's best restaurants. It's in the middle of a food court downtown. You know, it's kind of a neat um, concept, right? People are intrigued. And I told Laura, I was like, we're going to go to, um, we're going to take you to the Houston Chronicles best restaurant of the year. It's in the middle of a food court in an old post office downtown. She was intrigued, you know? Right. It's uh, a great story. It's a great yeah, story. Yeah. And then just briefly, I want to talk to you about Cap Supper Club. This is a kind of a, a bar, a restaurant, a music venue yes. uh, in the Briar Grove neighborhood. It was, it was sort of revived uh, a few months ago by uh, a physician who wanted to get in the restaurant business. You know, you and I had dinner there with, Omar Perrinet, the chef and, and consultant who kind of created that menu for the owner. It it was an unusual experience. But but let me I'll 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 expand on that. But but let me just ask you, I mean, what did you what did you think of our dinner at Cap Supper Club? I mean, did we have anything else but the steak? I mean, because that that's what <laughs> the steak was killing. <laughs> the steak was incredible. Um, and remind me where that chef came from before. So he was at Killen's SDQ for a long okay. time. So he knows. Yeah. He knows our friend and, and podcast regular Michael Fulmer pretty well Yeah, uh, through that connection. Yeah, really impressed with the steak. Obviously, you know, dining with Omar and we kind of got the backstory. I think we even met, you know, the doctor was there at the end. Um, you know, I think I admire, again, I feel like this this the theme of this week, right, is like takeovers, right, to changes, like you said. Um, I admire people going into a situation that maybe didn't succeed and kind of have the vision to let's try something new and let's kind of pivot and go another direction. I think what really impressed me about Omar's involvement was that he kind of was skeptical, I think, in the beginning, too, when he was kind of asked to partner on this project and then kind of got pulled into this, again, building for the neighborhood around you from what we, and when we were there pretty early, so the music hadn't started. So we didn't really get the full experience of the supper club part of it, the live music part, the dancing, but what from he, from what he described to us that that neighborhood is very, you know, um, um, I guess nostalgic for what that place used to be, which is the live dancing, the live music. I mean, it's packed on a Saturday night, get a steak, come, you know, this very kind of thirties and forties experience that we, you know, romanticize. Um, so I think he kind of, you know, explained to us that it doesn't necessarily need to be people from the Heights or Montrose or inside of Houston that are going to come out there, but they're, de they're designing that space for the existing clientele and just kind of upgrading it, which I thought, you know, I really appreciated that, that perspective. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, we went, I mean, you know, we went on a night when they don't have live music. And so, and there was know, a we pontoon the, we, outside. Right. Right. And it rained <laughs> that night. Like, uh, man, I, 
remember when it used to rain in Houston? I really miss that. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, there was a good hour or more when we were the only people in the dining room, yeah. uh, even though they were open for business, because people really, like you said, they they are used to Caps being a, a bar, uh, primarily a bar with, with music, and that all kind of happens. You know, the band doesn't come on stage until nine or 10. And so, and then they, they go until one or two or, or however late. And so, you know, I, I'm just kind of looking at this place going, you know, like, like the chef is good. Like on a Tuesday, right? Right, right. We were there, right. We were there the one night of the week week they don't have. (laughs) Right. We were there the one night of the week that they don't have music. I I don't know that that was communicated to me very well because I, I wanted to see the band, right? Like I I thought it would have been really fun to see the band, but you know, my, my one thought was like, at least at this point, like, like the food is good and, and I enjoyed it and I'm glad that we went, but like, this isn't really a restaurant, right? Like it's, uh, you know, uh, unless it's, it's customers like start seeing it as a dinner destination. Like yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense as a restaurant, but it, it makes sense to kind of be what it is. So I don't know, like I, I, you know, if you live in that part of the world, right. If you're Tanglewood, Briar Grove, you know, the Eastern edge of Memorial, maybe even spring branch, you want like a date night spot coming in from the Galleria maybe, but like there's, there's a, there there. We just, we just didn't experience it. <laughs> yeah, we saw a little glimpse of it, but steak was great, I will say. Steak was great. All right, Monica, I'm going to say that does it for the Restaurants of the Week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That does it for today's show. Join me on Thursday when my guest will be Sebastian LeBoff. Sebastian LeBoff.